basically, we want to do away with prompt engineering and in general with deciding between prompt engineering, fine tuning, you know, low hang fine tuning, combining multiple models and so on. We want a framework that abstracts that away. And given a problem you're trying to do and given a data set with like a few examples of it, it automatically kind of finds the right way to do it and it can transition between them. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO, and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. If you're not hardcore about AI, then stop the podcast now, because this episode is for real technology nerds. My guest is Matej Zaharia, CTO and co-founder of Databricks, where I'm a seed stage investor. Matej is also a professor of computer science at Stanford University. We cover a lot of ground, most of it technical, all of it very relevant for anyone who's serious about building with LLMs. Matej and I start with a discussion of Databricks' early days, how the startup established a foothold in a market dominated by entrenched incumbents, and some of the challenges he and his co-founders faced. The rest of the conversation is all about AI. Matej breaks down the most common challenges that enterprises run into when attempting to adopt AI. He shares tips for how startups can best deploy foundation models. And he speculates on what the game-changing new use cases for AI will be over the next two years. Matej also pulls back the kimono on some of the cutting-edge machine learning research he and his team at Stanford are working on. Finally, listen to the end for a fascinating exchange about artificial intelligence beyond large language models. Matej, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of B2B a CEO. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat. You know, it's exciting to have you on the podcast. I've had both Jan and Ali in the past and, and given your foundational role at Databricks and then more recently, more broadly across AI, I'm very excited about this conversation. We go back to the founding days when you were mm -hmm. really building Spark and you were the pioneer there. I remember people were very skeptical that Spark, mm -hmm. Spark would ever, you know, replace MapReduce. Yeah. Maybe go back, put yourself back in that time frame. I'd love for you to sort of share one or two anecdotes for the audience because they're probably facing that kind of skepticism in their startup today. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we did is um, we weren't really trying to go after the same audience as MapReduce in some sense. Like we we wanted to bring this kind of large scale computing to users. MapReduce and, and Hadoop and all these systems are mainly for software engineers. You know, you wrote a lot of code and we wanted to bring it to what you would call a data scientist, you know, today, but by, by at the time that the term was just starting up or like someone, some professional in another field who knows how to program, like maybe knows a bit of scripting and Python, but isn't like a full-time software engineer. So we started with that and, and, and ended up with something where even the engineers who were spending days writing like 
like these complicated jobs that you know I, I I wish I could do it faster. So it was like I think the metrics you look at matter a lot. Like the at, at least at the beginning for Spark on the metric of like ecosystem support, um, scale, uh, reliability, even performance. Like it, it wasn't as good in in the traditional MapReduce use cases, but on this metric of ease of use, it was good. And eventually, it got better in in some of the other ones too. And eventually, it opened you know this up to th this very wide range of users. So it it really depends what you're trying to do, but keep track of you know what you're looking at. Like most disruptive innovation at least is like that where at first you know it's not as good as the incumbent for like the the major things that thing does but it kind of shifts the yeah. the equation in some way yeah so you picked you picked a very narrow but a very clear wedge yeah you, you picked a very different persona that was an emerging persona a decade ago is now a yeah. mainstream persona as the user and you also chose to be cloud first oh yeah for the company that was a huge thing and there were lots of debates and you know, like lots of VCs actually who said just go on prem, whatever. But we we had used the cloud early on, and we so we knew it's like very exciting, and we also knew we wanted to be in a in a market where like we have a shot at doing well. You know, being in this new thing where people have to migrate to it anyway means that they would consider us as a solution. Whereas like going to prem stuff and the, the stuff that's been entrenched there for decades and trying to replace that is harder. And we wanted to have this discipline of like, hey, let's do one thing well uh, to start with, which turned out to be a good thing. Of course, we always evaluated. There were other things we started with that we, you know, we didn't stick with, but this is one that we did because it was working. No, I, I think I think that's a great insight for entrepreneurs, which is very often you have to pick an emerging market, which is small today. Yeah, where incumbents are willing to forego that market, but your bet that that's what's going to be big over time—that's what you know enables you to be best in class in in something that's small, but over time, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to ride that wave. And you did that with both the persona of a data scientist, and you did that with sort of the the cloud first focus. Now, in the early days, I know you were thinking a lot about AI and AI use cases, but in practice. Databricks has been used in the early days, especially for a lot more of the traditional sort of data engineering and data transformation use cases. Can you talk a little bit how about the use cases and how yeah. that has evolved? Well, I, I think it's an interesting question. I think it's important to kind of distinguish between like what is the the actual like goal of the use case versus um, where does a lot of revenue come from? Because our users, especially early on, were these data scientists who are trying to do like you know more advanced things. Certainly, like some machine learning, some statistics forecasting. Uh, but to do that, they also had to crunch through a lot of data. So you can end up with a thing where like, if you look at your revenue, a large percent is going into, you know, what you might call traditional ETL, but it is to serve this use case that they just couldn't do some other way. You know, there were also like today, a lot of the use cases are just, you know, traditional business analytics and data warehousing, which again, requires crunching through and preparing a lot of data and then serving it. But I would say, like, if you look at our average customer, you know, they are doing some machine learning, some data science, but they're also doing lots of other stuff. And it's a mix of both. That's super helpful. And I think that, that distinction is actually an interesting one, actually, for entrepreneurs, again, too, you know, mm -hmm. where very often the overall use case may be broad as a macro trend, but you're solving a piece of the puzzle. And that's what drives drives revenues for you. In, in your case, it was really the data, data processing as one step in that overall workflow to start. Mm -hmm. And now you support many more steps of that workflow over time. Yeah, now you, over time you can add, you know, downstream 
things, but it is really important to figure out where like, can you get revenue from? And what's important to do, you know, like either downstream or like whatever, what's important to do to improve that piece to make sure it continues to be, you know, the best for that particular goal. Yeah. One more question, Matei, on your Databricks experience before we sort of zoom out a little bit. Mm -hmm. As a technologist who's also been a, you know, founded a company that's now doing over a billion in revenues as, as someone who's continued to be, you know, a researcher at Stanford, are there one or two aspects of the journey that you'd like to share something that was, you know, that was a hard challenge for you, something you struggled with mm -hmm. uh, along the journey. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there are so many uh, that um, you know, I'm I'm trying to think of like which ones are most useful to talk about. Um, you know, a major part of what you have to do when when starting a company is is to build a team and keep hiring and keep making it really great, and that can be. You know, that can be very hard, especially when you try to get people in different domains from you. You know, like for us, it was not too bad to get, you know, good sort of distributed systems people and database people and and, and so on. Uh, but it was hard. You know, we, we didn't know a ton about um, what to look for, for example, in sales. So we had to learn a lot about that and we spent a long time. I think we spent about a year interviewing before we first we hired our first head of sales, but then, you know, he was awesome. He, he took us like all the way to, you know, billion plus from, from where he started. So uh, that was really awesome. It was a great hire. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah. And, yeah. And then um, same thing with like some of the technical that he has, like for example, for full stack and, and front end engineering, which are super important to our product. We just didn't have the network, but we did have this product. That's basically like, you know, it, it includes a UI for data scientists that we want to be awesome. Um, so what I learned with that is, you know, it's really important to get the right person to get a really strong person. Uh, it can be okay to wait a little bit um, and like really make sure you have them. And it can take a long time and you may want to start early. You know, like some people that we hired, we, we would spend more than a year kind of quoting them and talking, you know, maybe get them as an advisor until they finally are ready to, um, to jump ship. So that's one of the, I, I would say that that was one of the toughest um, things to do that, you know, takes a lot yeah, of it's time. It's great like, learning because, you know, some of the best people are not looking for a job when you want to hire them. And there's yeah. a whole journey of getting them excited about the company. Yep. And so making, recruiting a, a significant part of your job as a founder uh, is not something that comes naturally to a lot of technical people. Yeah. And it's also hard in some areas, if you don't know a lot about that, yeah, you should ramp up on it. Like Ali, uh, who you've interviewed, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he talked to tons of people. He learned a lot about each area we care about. He asked, who are the best people you know here? Who should I talk with? Who do you recommend hiring? Even for the people who wouldn't join themselves. And he became sort of an expert on like sales and customer success and, you know, finance and like all the stuff that, you know, he needs to, to think about. No, Ali's been, Ali's done a remarkable job of being a student of business mm -hmm. and, and taking sort of his, his engineering framework and applying it to every aspect of business and, and learning what parts of the framework work and what doesn't, but sort of building his own mental model uh, for the business. Uh, I'm going to zoom out of your role at Databricks and maybe talk a little bit about the research you've done sure. uh, at Stanford, uh, especially, you know, you've been very involved in the research around sort of machine learning broadly, both the mm -hmm. machine learning and the, and the interplay with search. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you've done and how it's, how it's applicable. Yeah, definitely. So at Stanford, when I began there, I, I decided to 
focused my group mostly on systems for machine learning. And we did a bunch of stuff like pretty early on. Uh, for example, we did some stuff with NVIDIA on training very large language models on like thousands of GPUs. That's now part of the Megatron open source package. And so we learned a bunch about this space before, you know, these models had the really cool capabilities everyone's excited about today, which is the instruction following. And one of the, the other things that I started looking at early on because I think it made sense logically is connecting language models with other sources of information through search or retrieval, you know, over a bunch of documents, which is, you know, what people are doing now with search engines and with vector databases and stuff like that. Um, and also, you know, you, you could imagine connecting them to APIs and tools and stuff like that as well. Um, so, uh, you know, the reason it was interesting is because like, no matter how large you make these statistical models, you know, they at least today, they still seem to make mistakes and it's very hard to control what they do, what they actually learn. And so instead of playing around with this very expensive game of like, can I tweak this and then spend months training it and like see if it does better, um, it seems better to figure out how to how to connect it to reliable information. So we've built some cool systems there that are used by different companies, like our retrieval model Colbert. Uh, we also have a part Wait, What is the retrieval model called again? It's called Colbert. Like, Colbert. Uh, yeah, C-O-L and then BERT. Uh, it's a play on BERT. It's uh, it's kind of funny, like I only recently realized like the technique in it is something called late interaction. It's like the way it scores documents. And then um, my student said he named it that way because of Colbert runs the late show. So it's, uh, I just thought it was a funny name, but he actually had a, a strong a he better story reason. behind it. Yeah, so, so, so like that's one. So, you know, we learned a little bit about like how to set up, how to train models for retrieval. And we're also doing quite a bit with combining language models with these tools in a reliable way. We have this framework demonstrate search predict or DSP that's, you know, similar to things like Langchain, but it's really uh, focused on how to automatically like improve a pipeline's quality to, to get it to very reliably do a task. So it's very exciting space. You know, everyone's looking at different aspects of it. And um, it's been fun to start with it, to try doing some things that are kind of hard, like trying to do well on these question answering data sets with, with pretty hard questions and then um, see what it takes and explore that. That's really cool. And in fact, you know, your research predates this, but if you think about sort of the power of, GPT-4, a lot of it comes from the fact that you can link it to a vector database and embeddings. Yeah. And, and it becomes the reasoning engine that sits on top of the knowledge engine. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. And I think a lot of people in this space are still thinking of language models as a, a way to store and query knowledge directly. They're, they're hoping it learns lots of knowledge, but I think that's not really good in, in many real applications. I, I would really love to decouple them. Like actually I'd love, like one of the problems with the bigger ones is they tend to, when they do hallucinate or make something up, like they, they, they tend to do it worse in some ways than like some of the small ones, if they think they memorize something and it's like actually they're wrong. Um, so I would love to figure out a way to like always have my model use sort of up-to-date or approved knowledge and, and just do reasoning. But so it's, still, it's still very early for founders building applications is this notion that really think uh -huh. of the LLMs, especially the large LLMs as reasoning engines and, and build the knowledge engine outside the model. Any advice yeah. on best practices for doing that? Any, any tips and tricks? 
Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, we've done a few things with, with this. I think um, one important thing is to uh, evaluate and like look in detail at where your model is or your application is going wrong and what you can do to fix it. But for example, with the typical like retrieval plus language model pipeline, there are two things that can go wrong. Like maybe you retrieve the wrong document, then you just don't have a shot of answering that question or doing that task. And that's a retrieval problem. Or maybe you got the right one, but then you didn't do a good job of like processing it. So you you really want to set up a good evaluation framework, ideally with feedback from like real users in your context. But you know, everything like ultimately you're doing a machine learning thing and all the successful machine learning products invest a lot in uh, measuring and evaluating um, and analyzing the success, you know, and each time they change the algorithm, they look for like the little percentage differences at each stage and, and what trade-off they want to make. I would also say, um, at least today, like using, giving your model lots of stuff in the context, giving it examples, fine-tuning it if you have enough data helps a lot. Like don't shy away from these kind of things. And we found, uh, you know, a lot of people just use um, third-party like uh, hosted models like GPD-3 and 4. But in many applications, if you fine-tune your own model, which isn't very expensive, it's only updating a few parameters, you know, it um, it does better than those do out of the box. So just like look, so yeah, great, analyze each- That's a great segue actually to a question I was going to ask you, which is, and there's two dimensions to the question. One is yep. using foundation models like GPT-4 and mm -hmm. others versus taking an open source model and yeah. then fine tuning it. And the second is large versus small models. But maybe we start yeah. with the first question, open source models with fine tuning versus uh, yeah. the foundation models like GPT-4. Yeah, so in general, so uh, of course, wh which one will do better when and how do you start in your, your company will, will depend a lot on the situation, especially for things that, you know, don't produce a very complicated output, like say they just answer a question or something. In general, if you have data, like fine tuning, uh, even an open source model uh, gets you quite far. You can also try fine tuning, you know, like GPD-3 and the different variants of that on providers like OpenAI, you know, they just don't have fine tuning for the biggest and best models yet, but I'm sure they will at some point. But fine tuning your own model can be, um, if you have like even hundreds or like, certainly if you have thousands of examples, it's very good. For things where maybe you're generating something very complicated, like generate a whole essay about something, you know, maybe they won't have the capacity to do as well, but it's important to sort of try them and see what they do. What I found is in a lot of applications, you know, to do really well, like the challenges, as I said, setting up an evaluation framework, setting up a way to do data generation. So if you come up with clever ways to do that, you'll be in a good spot. Like just as a simple example, there's all this, like people are kind of wringing their hands about like, hey, for question answering, you know, I can evaluate the result automatically. Like I can run the model and see if it wrote the right answer. If it's like a one word answer, it's just a string equals whatever. But if it makes a giant paragraph, like how do I evaluate the quality of that? But then there are researchers who sort of flipped the problem around and said, let's find like big paragraphs on the web and like, and that are an answer to a question, like say on Stack Overflow and train the model to like, follow that right so it's a 
sort of a game with like how you set up the data generation and the evaluation. And if you have some some clever insights there, you can suddenly turn like, yeah, what would have been uh, showing stuff to like lots of human labelers and paying, you know, lots of money to label it into something you can do automatically to get a very high quality data set. Makes a lot of sense. And you've talked about this evaluation framework or you've referenced it a couple of times and it comes yeah. up whenever I talk to entrepreneurs. Uh, do you have advice on how to set up an evaluation framework? Is there a project that people should look at, an open source uh, project for this? Yeah, I mean, right now it's very, it's still pretty early on for like language models specifically and for working with large amounts of text. So uh, definitely like look at what's out there. I think there are a lot of startups building things in this space, like, um, uh, you know, scale AI spellbook and like different, you know, all, all the labeling startups, basically label box and, and so on are all uh, building things here in the open source ML app space. Like actually at Databricks, we're investing a lot in ML flow to make it good for this. It's our open source ML apps framework that we and other companies sort of support. But uh, I think it's still a little bit open-ended. I think the harder part, honestly, than the tech of how to evaluate is more the business process. Like, how do you get realistic use cases? So in a company that's larger, like Databricks, you know, we can ask employees to like try something internally, right? So like we have stuff like search internal documents or whatever, like, you know, we, we can just have people use that. But in a smaller one, or if you don't really have customers yet, it's pretty hard. And figuring out how to get that like realistic feedback as close as possible to the thing you really want to do is um, is really important. Maybe like launch a free tier of your product, you know, maybe uh, find some customer who will, you know, deploy it at scale and, and like really give you feedback. Like just, and of course, if there's a way you can experience it as a user, that's the most powerful way because you'll bring together like, here's what kind of sucks about it with here's what I know is feasible to improve it. You know. I, I think that's a great insight because in some ways, this part of sort of the model training or more, even model development has a bit of a consumer like cold start problem. Because unless you have enough user data, you yeah. don't know whether you have the right model or what are the right trade-offs between which model to use or what combination of model plus augmented retrieval to use. And so you sort of are kind of stuck. You need customers to build a product but you need to have a product to get some customers, which yeah, is it's not true. common for enterprise startups, and I think is a, is a new phenomenon. Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, and if you find a way to bootstrap that, that's good. Yeah. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of how enterprises are beginning to use LLMs? Yeah, they're definitely um, very excited about it. So we look at these anonymized stats of like what you know libraries and so on. So, you know, customers are using, uh, and of course we talk to them and like survey them about use cases and so on. And I would say uh, even before ChatGPT took off, just like transformers and NLP were pretty widely used, but more for some pretty tailored use cases, basically classification, you know, like I have these um, review comments and I want to know like, uh, are they, you know, like how positive are they or stuff like that. And uh, machine translation was another one uh, yeah. where it's very common. You have someone who needs to 
you know, ship a product into many, many countries and update all the docs and all that for that product. Um, with these instruction-tuned and conversational models, a lot of companies are also looking at basically, you know, knowledge assistant or QA bot type of use cases. And there, there are actually many doing it internally, just inside their company. If you're large enough, can you help people onboard and so on and answer questions? Um, and then there are many who are doing it externally for things like customer support. So I would say that is the biggest one that's starting up. And then another one that's gotten a lot better is uh, what I would call basically text analytics. So, you know, if you've got a bunch of like documents, let's say they're all like, you know, contracts with, uh, you know, with farmers or like something yeah. like that. And you had a question like how many of these are about, you know, this type of product and this type of soil. They each format it differently, but now you can ask a language model to read them and to answer that question and you can get an answer. Before those were just big strings of text in your database. So um, so these two use cases, the QA bots grounded in like internal documents and the um, the text analytics are the most common. But there are some really funky ones out there too, you know, that like people are coming up with like, you know, generate recipes for me or, you know, stuff like that. Like I have like recipes of everything I've produced in my company before and I want to try new variants, like all kinds of, you know, all kinds of fun stuff also. Yeah. What do you think? So that's great. What do you think, you know, if you if you play this out another two to three years, it's very hard to look beyond that. Uh, yeah. Given how quickly the stack is changing. And maybe even that is too far out. Yep. But what are the one to three net new use cases that you think are sort of the really big game-changing use cases? Yeah, great question. So I think the clearest thing, so by the way, I'm not, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical about like if you just put in lots of parameters into an LLM, it'll become super intelligent and stuff like that. I, I don't really think so. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to talk about those kind of use cases, but, I, you know, maybe maybe they'll happen. But the, I think the, the really clear ones that will like almost certainly happen, first of all, I think LLMs will basically revolutionize like all um, you know, human computer interfaces, like any, any software you work with, you know, you, you'll be able to do stuff in natural language. And, uh, you know, there's like the obvious thing of like, let's put in a little chat bubble on the UI, but you can probably imagine revamping a lot of UIs to do this. So that's something that I think every software company should care about. If you built, you know, a product with a UI and you didn't consider this, uh, then, you know, you probably should. Uh, same thing with like consumer devices, really. Yeah. You know, I see that, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the board of uh, Cohesity and, and they uh -huh. have been very early to this working, you know, working with Microsoft where they're saying, look, storage is incredibly complex to manage. Yep. And, you know, that's why companies have so many storage admins and they're going to, they're just going to yeah. make it easy for you. You don't have to know the hundred different things. You just, you can tell the interface what you want to do and we'll figure out what parameters because there are thousands of permutation combinations, but they're all well understood. Yeah. The data set actually exists. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's I think a very good one. I think um many use cases that are a little bit like search, if we can solve the sort of attribution and grounding and knowledge problem, they'll become quite a bit better. You know, like you can imagine chat GPD for whatever, like for your domain, you know, like I'm trying to repair this product or I'm trying to get advice on like this, you know, medical condition or stuff like that. But for a lot of these, it's too, right now it's like too scary because of how inaccurate it can be. 
But if we can solve that problem, then that's a pretty good one too. That's sort of, you can think of it as search on steroids or you know websites like Quora and Stack Overflow and Reddit and so on also serve this purpose. But these are the ones in some sense that are most disrupted by these chatbots with like broad knowledge of stuff on the internet. And I think a lot of companies will do this with data in their domain also um, to, to help their users. And then text analytics is the other one. As I said, you got a bunch of text lying around. Suddenly you can answer questions about it. It sort of feeds into analytics. So I think these are, you know, these are sort of the biggest use cases and probably these um, like some form of enhanced UI will be the net new product that, you know, we haven't seen. And there, there's a lot of, you know, like the jury is out about what it will be like. Maybe it will all be voice, you know, maybe voice will finally be awesome or uh, maybe it won't because it's annoying to have lots of people talking around you when you're at the office and yeah. it'll be text. And, and, and the elements still don't get my accent. So uh -huh. yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully one day. They'll probably like ace, you know, high school physics exams and stuff before they can do this stuff, unfortunately, but we can dream, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's clearly a lot of enterprise interest. As you, you've talked about some of the use cases where folks are trying it out, and I think there's lots of opportunity. Yeah. There's also challenges. What are one or two of the challenges that you see enterprises face when they try to adopt LLMs and generative AI more broadly? Well, yeah, some of the challenges, yeah. So, uh, oh boy, so, so there are a lot of them. I think one challenge is um, simply, do you have um, the data to um, to actually build something useful, right? If, if it's like garbage in, you, you get garbage out. So that is a core problem. You know, we if, if anything, I think the more of these AI applications you have, the more important it is to have data like really in a, in a good spot. Another one is this whole evaluation framework and like, uh, LLM ops or whatever, ML ops for your generative AI application, which again is very nascent. You know, there are some things that we're seeing are working, but there's also, there's a big business element of it. Like if you never, if you don't have any real users who would ever try this and give feedback, you know, it doesn't matter what technical thing you do, you probably won't succeed with it. So figuring out like, do you have a business plan that includes, here's how I'm gonna set up that uh, flywheel yeah. of like feedback. And then there are tech challenges. I think for a lot of companies are excited about sort of prototyping with um, third party models like um, like Anthropic and OpenAI and, and uh, Google Palm and stuff like that, but they really want to own their data and their models and they don't want to send it to a third party, especially in another country, for example. And so then there's the challenge of like, how can I build it and control it myself? Uh, governance, always a challenge, right? Like what if someone has to remove their data or whatever, how do I make sure, you know, I train it on private data, but it doesn't leak it. So these are more like when you, you know, you have something that looks promising, but you want to like really, you know, bring it to bear. But I would say the first two, like, do I have data that's like valuable to turn into an application? And do I have the feedback mechanism? These are the first two you got to solve. You know, those are definitely the first order issues in, you know, data governance, data privacy always yeah. sort of becomes a, you know, a stumbling block for large enterprises. And that is probably a good transition to my next question around using open source models versus, mm -hmm. and small open source models yeah. that you can run at a lower cost versus sort of the large horizontal models. How do you see the world evolving three years from now? If you had a guess, what would OpenAI's market share be? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's it's very hard to tell. I mean, also, I don't know, like, OpenAI's product plan. I mean, I'm sure they're, you know, maybe it's more than just creating models. But um, 
my feeling on, on this stuff is that I, I do think of, like language models might become quite commoditized. And th there are a few reasons for it. So one reason is um, they're obviously a very useful technology. So like lots of, you know, lots of companies are working on them, right? So even through competition of those companies, they will get cheaper, they'll get better, you know, everyone will, and, and they're kind of substitutable, right? It's a little bit like cloud infrastructure providers, right? You got a CPU here, you got a CPU there, it's the same thing. So that's like one thing. The other one is the tech to train them is the specialized hardware, which is like one thing we still know how to scale pretty well, you know, kind of following Moore's law or, you know, similar sort of exponential scaling. So the hardware to train them is, and, and will get cheaper over time. And the operations they're doing are like so simple now that, you know, there are many entrants to the space that are building specialized hardware. And then the other reason that's a little interesting is, you know, these models are trained on like lots of public data basically like all the knowledge ever like generated and written yep. down in the world and some people might say wow that's a huge amount of data like how how can you ever it's going to cost billions to do that but it's actually not you know people haven't written that much in the grand scheme of things people are not writing too much new data per day we each output like you know maybe a few kilobytes of text per day or something um so like overall like the amount of useful data you can train on is probably measured in the in the terabytes and uh that's small data like for us like you know we can crunch through that with like at least the the data analytics stuff we do for like a few dollars we can you know do stuff on on a few terabytes of data so it's not that big and and it's not going to get bigger super fast so these are reasons why like you have this kind of fixed amount of data you train on you got hardware that's getting better you got algorithms that are getting better uh, lots of researchers working on it lots of market dynamics so it's quite possible that we'll end up anyone can make one of these high quality things but you know the jury's out i think the steps later with sort of uh content moderation and uh stuff like that are harder to do there's a lot of ml research to tune the model to a specific application but i do think the base technology which is the start of that is not you know it, it, it maybe something that everyone can get got it i think it's a very interesting insight and i think your observation on there's not that much data to train on is counterintuitive Especially yeah. the narrative that OpenAI has created, where they, you know, talk about how they've spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars training these models. So, how do you reconcile your comment with the OpenAI narrative? Well, I think it's very hard to do the first one, but like, and I think a lot of that money is spent on, first of all, on like researchers, right? Like the people who figure out here's how you set up the model, here's how you set up the supervision, and then also on many experiments that fail. You know, like you try something, you run it for a month, you know, it crashes or whatever. It didn't, you know, it, it plateaus. But once you find the recipe that works, like doing more of that doesn't have to be that expensive. It's kind of like um, you're, you're designing a new chip or something like the, the design at first takes a long time. Uh, lots of things go wrong. Lots of smart people are involved, maybe a bunch of testing. But once you build it, you can you can stamp out more of them. And sometimes you can even... Uh, sort of scale them up or hook them together to get essentially a bigger version. So, Got it. And it sounds like that knowledge is also becoming more widely distributed. So the learnings from their, their experiences, learning from Google are now becoming yeah, exactly. available but to more It's hard more to tell, but if you look, if you look at, so I think language models are kind of special because they're kind of different because we are um, expecting them to have a lot of world knowledge. And I think that's why they need a lot of parameters. But if you look at computer vision or like image generation, 
you know, there are really good models that just like fit on your phone and stuff that are quite quite solid that are just a few, a couple billion parameters. So, um, and it's become pretty, um, in some sense, pretty commoditized. And then the companies that are doing this well are trying to put in like better trading methods or better data or like whatever to like make sure their images look better than the competition. But the basic idea of like, I have some stuff and I want to generate images is, is out it, there. Is, is out there. Maybe sort of talk a little bit further further out in terms of sort of, you know, how, how the technology might change so much of the oxygen in the room has been sucked by LLMs yeah. and, and the transformer architecture. When you zoom out of that, you know, how do you think about AI more broadly? Are LLMs and the transformer architecture mm -hmm. going to subsume all of AI or what's the next big thing? No, yeah, I think, I think there'll still be other architectures in other domains. And I think there's also really cool work on multimodal uh, models, which are like the same model can understand say, audio and text and images and video, maybe other stuff too, like time series and things like that, that will probably open up a bunch of cool applications. Um, so I, I do think, yeah, you shouldn't lose track of the other things that AI can do, even on the more traditional, you know, predictive analytics type of stuff. Um, you know, you can now bring in like images and text and so on with some of these deep learning systems and you can probably improve a lot of those applications. So. Um, I think AI as a whole is more than LLMs. But LLMs are interesting because they're so general. And as I said, because they can basically, in some sense, like improve any user interface you have where there's like someone there. So that's, it's reasonable to spend a lot of time on them if you have a product that like interacts with people in some way. It's very clear for generative use cases of all kinds. You know, LLMs has been a massive yep. step forward. At the same time in enterprises, you know, a lot of the use cases are around prediction and optimization. Yeah. And time series data. And, and I'm curious, what are the things you're seeing in the, in the realm of research uh, that might become just as important in the next handful of years? Yeah, it's a great question. There are some approaches that take basically transformers and some of the things we learn how to train in a, in a scalable way with LLMs and apply them to time series. But, you know, I, I, the jury is still out, I think, on how well all those work. You know, there are more traditional approaches that are sort of easier to control and make um, kind of predictions about. Um, so I would say we've got a whole range of new toys to play with. I think the, the most obvious thing for that kind of traditional ML use case is, you know, usually you design features to put into your model. And if you ever, if you had a bunch of text that like before is just sitting there, you don't know how to turn it into like numbers and put it in, you can probably use our language model and a little bit of, um, help to either extract features from it or to turn it into an embedding that's useful. So that's kind of like the text analytics use case I was talking about, right? Like for example, imagine you have product reviews and like your, or something and, and your features for recommendation before where just like the fields someone put in about your product, like name, price, whatever, but you also got all these reviews. Like now you can use them to generate features like, you know, people don't like the battery life or like wh whatever it is. And, and theoretically you can improve your, whatever you were doing before, you know. Matej, this has been super helpful. Thank you so much for your time. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. 
B2B as CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm. With over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, Tube Mogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.